Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Damania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start with our patient case. A two-year-old Asian male presents with difficulty feeding. He has a history of epilepsy and recently was switched to valproic acid for seizure control as well as ornithine transcarboamylase deficiency or OTC deficiency diagnosed at birth. He has had a three-day history of URI, cough, which now progressed to difficulty feeding. His parents states that he was initially very fussy. However, in the past few hours, he has actually become more sleepy. He has not had any fevers. They have noticed that while he is sleeping, he has been breathing fast. Prior to arrival to the emergency room, he was noted to have a large, non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. Upon transfer to the trauma bay, the patient suddenly has a seizure. A quick point-of-care glucose is normal. His care is escalated and diagnostic workup is initiated. All right, Pradeep, let's go ahead and get into our case. Now, this case had two key elements in the history. Namely, this patient has a history of OTC deficiency and valproic acid use, which place him particularly at high risk to have hyperaminemia. As this is the topic of our discussion today, would you mind starting with the general background and definition of hyperaminemia? Rahul, this is a great case. This is a classic case, not only of hyperaminemia, but also a metabolic crisis in this case, which is probably related to the urea cycle defect. As a background, the urea cycle is the metabolic pathway that transforms nitrogen to urea for excretion from the body. We get nitrogen sources from a few areas in the body. One is from the peripheral muscle, and the other is from the dietary intake, which is basically protein ingestion. Excellent. Now, to summarize, the urea cycle occurs in the liver, and once the ammonia is converted to urea in the hepatocyte, it is excreted into the kidney as urea. We will dive into this deeper soon. However, pathologies which impair adequate hepatocyte function can impair the urea cycle and thus can lead to hyperaminemia. Rahul, that's a great basic science summary. Would you mind commenting about this patient's enzyme defect, i.e. the OTC deficiency? Yes, absolutely. So ornithine transcarboamylase, or OTC for short, is one of the first few enzymes in the urea cycle. As a background, the inheritance pattern of majority of all of the urea cycle defects are autosomal recessive. However, OTC deficiency is different. It is X-linked. And I would like to say that this is a highly tested board concept for general pediatrics boards as well as USMLE. In a 21-year multi-center retrospective study, it was noted that only 34% of patients with urea cycle defects presented during the neonatal period, i.e. less than 30 days of age. And around 25% of cases, basically a quarter of cases, presented in the 2 to 12-year-old range. This is why I would like to drive home the point that patients may have a urea cycle defect or any inborn error of metabolism if the patient is A, undifferentiated, and especially critically ill. So Pradeep, why do you think there are subsets of populations who present later? 
This is a great question, Rahul. And I think the cause is probably multifactorial. It is worth noting that patients may have a partial enzyme deficiency, and this may be the major reason why patients may have an atypical presentation beyond the newborn period. This delayed presentation is most commonly seen in patients with partial OTC deficiency. So as we've highlighted key pathophysiologic components, Pradeep, do you mind now highlighting typical clinical presentations of a child with a urea cycle defect and specifically hyperaminemia? Absolutely. The presentation may be variable, but let's break down some of the key features which we saw in our case. Patients typically have a preceding illness, such as an upper respiratory tract infection or gastroenteritis, which triggers a catabolic state. As a result, patients end up having high ammonia levels, which end up creating a picture of somnolence, inability to maintain normal blood temperature, poor feeding, emesis, and in severe cases, lethargy and coma. That's great. And just as a summary, the presentation of hyperaminemia could be mimicked as sepsis. And thus, we have to keep our differential very broad, have fine attention to trends in our vitals or clinical exam, and early aggressive management with contingency planning is crucial to the care of these patients. Yeah, and Raul, just to add to that, I think we have to remember patients who have enzyme deficiencies and have a metabolite in their system makes their white cells not function appropriately. So they are at risk for infection, period. So we should have a low threshold to start antibiotics in case this kid's acting febrile or you suspect infection. Now, as we wrap up our clinical presentation, what would be some other physical exam abnormalities we will see upon initial presentation? Absolutely. I mean, I would like to highlight some important points here. Subtle signs of elevated ammonia include behavioral modifications such as delirium, as well as neurodevelopmental delay. It is really important for us to recognize that altered mental status, seizures, these may be late presentations. Let's go ahead and conclude this episode with some management pearls. Pradeep, what is your general approach to hyperaminemia? I think, Rahul, we really need to have a big picture mindset of assessing the degree of how high the ammonia is. Couple this with patient's clinical status, and overall, we need to decrease the patient's catabolism. Patients who have acute hyperaminemia, first of all, most likely will need admission to the PICU. We must also consult our genetics team as well as the nutritionist to help manage these cases in the PICU. We typically start these patients on a lipid emulsion and IV fluids with at least 10% or greater glucose to reverse catabolism and dehydration. In parallel, we will talk to the nutritionist to decrease protein intake, at least for the first 24 to 48 hours, to avoid further catabolism. Patients who are going to have a really high ammonias we should think about using nitrogen scavengers. Excellent. And just to kind of comment on these nitrogen scavengers, the ones that are typically used are known as sodium phenyl acetate and sodium benzoate. And in a landmark trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2007, these therapies, along with adequate calorie intake, reported lower plasma ammonia levels, especially in children with urea cycle disorders. Actually, in February of 2005, a combined preparation of 
sodium phenyl acetate and sodium benzoate, what is the brand name Aminol, was actually approved for parenteral delivery. Now, Pradeep, let's dive into these scavengers a little bit more. How do they actually work? These nitrogen scavengers basically scavenge ammonia by creating an alternative pathway to excrete nitrogen precursors. Remember, the NH3 form of ammonia crosses the blood-brain barrier, whereas these alternative forms, and especially NH4+, are water-soluble and therefore can be excreted. Specifically, phenyl acetate combines with glutamine to form phenylacetylglutamine, and benzoate combines with glycine to form hippurate. Absolutely. So just as a summary, it is important to remember that the NH3 groups or the ammonia groups in the body are actually carried on amino acids such as glutamine and glycine. The disposal of glutamine and glycine reduces the total nitrogen pool. It is really important to accept a little bit of an acidic serum pH in these patients so that these patients can convert ammonia, which is NH3, to ammonium. And downstream, we want to prevent entry into the blood-brain barrier. Now, Pradeep, as we go into these nitrogen scavengers and use them clinically, do you have just some brief recommendations on dosing? Yeah, I think for patients who weigh less than 20 kilos, we typically use a loading dose of about 500 milligram per kilo, which is basically 250 milligram per kilo of each drug in the combination in a volume of 25 to 35 ml per kilo of 10% dextrose solution. And this is infused over 90 minutes. For patients who weigh more than 20 kilos, Dosing is based on body surface area. The loading dose is about 11 gram per meter square, i.e. 5.5 gram per meter square for each of these drugs in the combination. Maintenance infusion of sodium phenyl acetate, sodium benzoate, 500 milligram per kilo per 24 hours for patients less than 20 or 11 grams per meter square per 24 hours as a continuous infusion for patients over 20 kilos is started when the loading dose is completed, and this is administered in the same volume as the loading dose, which is 25 to 35 ml per kilo of uh, 10% dextrose solution. Rahul, are there any adverse events which we need to watch when we give our patients sodium phenylacetate and uh, sodium benzoate? Absolutely. Now, most of these patients who are going to be administered aminol are going to have metabolic electrolyte derangements. We're going to be watching for hypokalemia, hyperchloremia, as well as acidosis. Clinical signs and clinical side effects are going to be neurologic in etiology, such as seizures or even respiratory. Patients who are administered aminol may actually have respiratory distress or even respiratory failure. We should really monitor electrolytes hourly and sometimes even daily during loading and maintenance infusions of aminol. Because these medications actually contain high concentrations of sodium and chloride. And it's important to note that sodium phenylacetate administration may actually cause potassium depletion. Now, going back to the NEJM trial, children who were treated with aminol with recurrent admissions for hyperaminemia had really good survival. It was reported up to 84%. It is important for us to note, however, neurological outcomes in this study were not evaluated. Rahul, what is the role of uh, arginine and citrulline in the management of hyperaminemia? IV arginine hydrochloride 
is used as part of the initial management of metabolic decompensation in all forms of urea cycle defects, except known arginase deficiency. Because in this case, if you gave arginine, these patients would not be able to metabolize the arginine. Now, arginine is created via the urea cycle. And in our case, this patient has an ornithine transcarboamylase deficiency or OTC deficiency. So arginine now becomes an essential amino acid. Blood pressure should be monitored in patients who are given IV arginine, as frequently these patients may have hypotension. We should also monitor these patients similar to aminol for hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Pradeep, what about citrulline? Rahul, in OTC or CPSI deficiency, small oral doses of citrulline provided because incorporating aspartate nitrogen may improve clearance as urea. In one retrospective study, patients treated with L-citrulline reduced ammonia levels and improved weight gain that was most likely due to increased protein intake. Now, Pradeep, let's go ahead and take a step back and look longitudinally. Before we go into hemodialysis and its role, are there certain medications which we want to avoid in these patients who have hyperammonemia? Absolutely. I think uh, number one on that list is probably glucocorticoids because they increase protein catabolism and they should not be used routinely in these patients. The other important drug we need to think about is valproic acid, typically used for uh, management of seizures. Valproic acid has been shown to inhibit urea synthesis, leading to increased serum ammonia levels. And so it should be avoided in these patients. Absolutely. Just as a summary, seizures may be treated with other anti-epileptic drugs. Although what we have to recognize is first, correct the underlying metabolic abnormality that is going to more likely affect your seizure control. Yes. Is mannitol effective in treating cerebral edema caused by hyperaminemia in urea cycle defects? No, there is a limited role for mannitol. Let's conclude this episode with the discussion of hemodialysis. What's the appropriate timing for hemodialysis? I think hemodialysis should be started as soon as possible after hospital admission of a patient with severe hyperaminemia. Indications include an ammonia level that is rapidly increasing, acute hyperaminemia that is resistant to initial drug therapy, and or ammonia that is persistently above the range of 350 to 400 micromoles per liter. As many of our centers have CVVH readily available, I think it's really important to consult with the nephrology team to optimize your flow rates as these patients will need high clearance. Typically, flow rates greater than 40 to 60 ml per minute are going to be used. Now, this method is less desirable as an initial treatment, although it can be used effectively between hemodialysis treatments to continue to remove ammonia or in situations where hemodialysis staffing is limited. Rahul, what is the end point if we decide to go down the route of either hemodialysis or CVVH? Absolutely. Now, we really need to trend our ammonia concentration, sometimes even hourly. Hemodialysis is stopped when the ammonia concentration has typically dropped below 200 because it appears in the literature that there is no real effect of hemodialysis below this level. Now, what is important to recognize, though, is that plasma ammonia may increase again, i.e. it may rebound because 
of the delay in the effect of these nitrogen scavenging medications and the ongoing catabolism that these patients may have. Thus, I think as a summary, hourly monitoring of ammonia levels should be continued until the ammonia level have stabilized below 200 for at least 24 hours. After a while, to decrease iatrogenic blood draws, we should space out the intervals to every four hours. Rahul, can you summarize our episode on hyperanemia today? Absolutely. So I have three take-home points. Point number one, in newborns, urea cycle defects typically present after 24 to 48 hours of age. Now, clinical features in this population, somnolence, poor feeding, lethargy, vomiting, and coma. Other features include central hyperventilation leading to initially a respiratory alkalosis. You could then progress to seizures. The second summary point, the initial laboratory evaluation for any child who you have a suspected urea cycle defect should include an arterial pH, CO2, serum ammonia, lactate, glucose, electrolytes, and amino acids. You should also get urine organic acids as well as orotic acid. Now, elevated plasma ammonia concentration combined with normal blood glucose and normal anion gap strongly suggests a child in front of you who has likely a urea cycle defect. And then just to comment as our third summary point on management, initial approach to the treatment of urea cycle defects consists of volume repletion, ammonia removal, protein restriction, and stimulation of anabolism. Respiratory status must be closely monitored, especially if you're going to be giving aminol. And then the pharmacologic therapy for hyperaminemia consists of aminol, which is that sodium phenylacetate, sodium benzoate, IV arginine, IV citrulline in certain cases, and then a maintenance medication, which you're going to be coordinating very closely with your metabolics team. Patients can be transitioned to oral glycerol phenylbutyrate, also known as Revictory. Rahul, that was an excellent summary and a very good take-home points. This concludes our episode today on hyperaminemia. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. 